0: Look like some people still recovering from yesterday. A little lighting here today, but that heat was something, but but we're not here to talk about that son, we're here to talk about the other son. To continue with the thanks, we can't forget, Mark was on the popcorn over there, Mark Phipps over there on the popcorn, was doing this thing. Can't forget the Maria, Sandra, and her daughter, Sophia was over there doing that thing over there on the tables. There was a lot of people serving, a lot of people helping. Thank you for that. Thank you. I was a little, I got to be honest, I was a little shell-shocked when I saw the snake, but then I realized it's a different color, different vibe, and it's not in my home. So pray for me, though. I am on Amazon looking for some snakeskin boots just to be (laughs) too soon. All right, today we are going to tie up some loose ends. We have two more sermons, this one and one more sermon in this series, where we're going to tie up some loose ends. So I'm not expecting this to be groundbreaking. Some of this will be somewhat familiar ground, but we need to tie up some loose ends because we are in a series, that have been in a series since September, entitled The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible, where we are processing the Bible, not from primarily God's relationship to humanity, but God's relationship with the first sons of God. We're processing his relationship through that dynamic as we look throughout Scripture. We often forget that there is a relationship that God has with other beings that he created that we call angels or you know, other, other creatures. We even call them demons. God doesn't have a relationship with demons in the same sense, but we know that from that message on Genesis 6. But we often forget that, that there is a dynamic in Scripture that is significantly about God's relationship with the other sons of God, other divine beings that have nothing to do with us in that sense, apart from we are the context in which God goes after those divine beings. So we're going to go back to two of the most significant moments in scripture. These scenes are movies that we have seen before, but as often has been the case, We see something new when watching again. Remember, God is intentional. Every detail matters, some more than others. Here's the main point of today's message. Here's the main point. The main point is thank God for motherhood, is that we thank you for. Thank God for that. I know it was just Father's Day, but moms usually be the ones taking them kids out when they be wilding. Here's the main point of today. God leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. He leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. Even though we've seen many moments of redemption, we know that what happened at the cross is the ultimate moment. It is the pinnacle of redemption. And just when you thought you'd seen it all, there's more. Here's something that I want you to understand that may be new for some of you, it may not. The cross is first and foremost the ultimate judgment against all the other gods that have rebelled against God that led humanity into sin. It is first and foremost the ultimate judgment against all the other gods that led humanity into sin. Let me explain. We spent a good deal of time in this series looking at Genesis 3.15, but this morning, let's look at it again, processing it through the lens of the impending crucifixion. When God told Satan in Genesis 3.15, when he said these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan didn't know what that meant. And at the time when Moses wrote that for the Israelites, they didn't know what that meant. Only God knew what that meant. Only thing that everyone knew is somehow God said that there will be a man, a he, that will crush Satan's head, which is his authority in the world. Now we've looked at this verse from so many angles and have gotten so much from it, it's mind-blowing. Let's look one more angle today. One more angle. What God said is a fulfillment at the cross and the resurrection. Matthew 27, 32 through 36 tells us this. As they went out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, his being Jesus'. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. For, For your purposes, the reason why he wouldn't drink it, because wine mixed with gall was a narcotic that was to numb the pain. So Jesus, to accept the full wrath of God, would not take anything that would numb any pain which is why he refused it. Everyone else would have been asking for seconds and thirds right. because it numbed the pain. Jesus would not numb the pain. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Luke's, Mark's version of this says the same thing. This scene is in all four Gospels. Mark's version says this, beginning in verse 21, Mark 15, 21 to 25. Here's what it says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming, from, coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Luke's version Luke 23, verses 32 and 34, says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. John's version. John 19, verses 16 through 18, says this. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. When all four Gospels tell you something, it is of significant importance to God that the people he's talking to see it. So why did God want Jesus crucified here, of all places? Why is God drawing attention to the name and the place? Now, obviously, there were Jews when the Gospels were written just decades after Jesus' death. They could identify with that place. But God knew that people throughout all human history who he had chosen to belong to the Son would also read these verses. And even though we weren't there, God wants us to know exactly where Jesus was crucified, so much so that he describes it in all four Gospels. Why is the place where Jesus was crucified so important to God? What should grab our attention in light of Genesis 315, in light of the supernatural storyline that we're in? Remember what God said to Satan. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want to start by saying the cross was Satan bruising the heel of the he seed of the woman. The cross was the bruising of the heel. Let me explain. This statement from God is not simply God describing physical events like the beating, the the crown of thorns, the the, the 39 lashes, the, the actual physical pain. God's not describing that as simply minimizing it to the bruising of the heel. But God is making a point not so much about how we should understand the physical impact. He's talking about the overall eternal impact of Satan. What you're going to do to him is equivalent to bruising the heel. What he's going to do to you is bruising your head. He's describing the impact. So let's begin. Based on what we see in scripture, there's no other references that God could be referring to that Satan will have any direct impact on the heat. There's nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in the Gospels. It was not in the wilderness where Satan tempted him and Jesus resisted him. It was not in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that in Luke, Luke's Gospel tells us, Luke 4, that Satan waited for an opportune time to come back and tempt Jesus. We have no idea when that is, but speculation could be it was the Garden. Speculation. But that's not the purpose of our message today. Based on what we see in the scriptures, there's no other reference of Satan being able to do anything to Jesus that would even remotely look like hurting him apart from the cross. There's none. In fact, Jesus attributes from the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to the evil happening up to the cross. He attributes it to Satan, who represents the darkness. Here's what he says in Luke 22, beginning of verse 47 through through 53. Here's what he says. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those were and those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, Peter. I just love that Peter just Peter's a gangster. He'd just be like, man, you ain't touching the Lord. <laughs> ear is gone. I bet you heard that. And one of them, I shouldn't have probably said that. I'm not. I'm only saying it because Jesus healed that man. All right. And one of them struck the servant of the right high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But listen, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So this is your hour. I know what this is and the power of darkness. The power of darkness is Satan. Keep in mind that earlier in Luke 22, verses 3 and 4, we see this. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Keep in mind, Judas, Satan goes into Judas, right, the king of darkness, and Judas goes and says, all right. How, how much I want to betray him? What is it going to take? That's the conversation. And then a couple hours later, here comes Judas leaving this group of people to arrest the Lord. Satan did not know that when he entered into Judas that he was supposed to. He didn't know. Satan thought, I'm getting tired of this dude. Now keep in mind, this happened a week before this scene. Jesus stood in front of the gates of hell and said the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. And then Jesus went to the mountaintop, right, Mount Hermon, which most people believe to be true. And that's the place where the sons of God, the angels, decided to rebel against God in Genesis 6. So Jesus goes up to the mountain and transfigures in front of them. One theologian, Mike Heiser, said he was picking a fight because a week later, he was dead. Satan had no idea what was going on. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. It says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although... It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He's not talking about human beings. Rulers of this age, this language is exclusively talking about demonic cosmic powers. Cosmic powers of evil. And he says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, this is verse 7, which God had decreed before the ages for our glory. Listen to the verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had no clue. Satan, when he entered Judas, he was like, yeah, I'm taking one of his close ones, just like I did in the garden. Took his one of his close ones. He had no idea that he was fulfilling the bruising of the hill. But we're not here to talk about that. We're trying to talk about the other side, the redemptive side. The resurrection is the bruising of Satan's head. Let me explain. John 19, beginning in verse 38 to 42, tells us this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, but about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with, with the spices as it was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus was crucified in the place of the skull, and he was resurrected in a garden where he was crucified in the place of the skull. Stay with me. This is a detail God wants us to know. There was a garden right there. Right where Jesus was crucified, they put him in the garden. Didn't have to carry him too far. And you had 75 pounds of cologne, like, yeah, The resurrection is the bruising of Satan's head. Now, we have beat that horse dead in this series. (laughs) But let's just revisit something to make this point. You guys know that Jesus' defeating death crushes Satan's authority over people. Hebrews 2 tells us this. Listen to this. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus rising from the dead, not dying in the sense that all people die and don't come back, unless Jesus brings them back from the dead. Right? Yeah, three times in the Gospels, there's three resurrections in the Gospels. We know this. We know that, that this is defeat Satan, and we looked at in Easter Sunday a lot of the rebellion reversal of the cross. But God leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. and He's intentional. Every detail matters, some more than others. So in light of what we read, let's go back to Genesis 3:15, one more time. I will put enmity, God talking to Satan, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see four times in the Gospels the location of the bruising. Matthew tells us it's called a place called Gogatha, which means place of a skull. Mark tells us the same thing, a place called Gogatha, which means place of a skull. Luke tells us the place is called the skull. John tells us the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. All four Gospels make sure we know where Jesus was buried. Why? Well, one, the Gospels were written, as I said, decades after crucifixion. So drawing attention to the location is further proof that it happened. You know, when they wrote these Gospels, there were already people saying, these dudes are lying. This didn't happen. They're lying. So they were competing with stories to stop the spread of the church. So writing these were helping people remember. Second reason, well, it jogs the memory of those who were there. Many people believe that Jesus was crucified on this high hill. Not true. The Romans didn't crucify people far away because they wanted people to see it. So when it said people sneered as they walked, it was because Jesus was right on the main road. He wasn't on a hill far away. The Pharisees wouldn't have said, hey, take him down. That's too far away. It's he's in direct contact with the road that we need to walk to in order to celebrate the Passover. Mm-hmm. So can you take them down? Because we don't want to see three men crucified on the cross on our holiest holiday. Jesus wasn't crucified on a hill. He was on the street where everybody was walking past. That's why they were like, crucify him. Nobody's walking up no hill. <laughs> I'd have been yelling down there, hey, tell uh, Martello and then to tell him that I wouldn't be walk up no hill. You wouldn't walk up all the way up the hill. No, Jesus was in the presence where everyone could see him. That's what the Romans crucified. It's a, it's a historical fact. Another reason why it gives credibility to its validity. When you can name what happened and where it happened, that, that's a certainty there. That's you saying, all right, well test me then. This is where he got crucified. Because decades later, The Romans may have moved the location, but people remembered this location because they saw a lot of people crucified there, namely Jesus. So those are good reasons. But something else is happening here because Jesus was resurrected here at the place of the skull. Now, the skull is literally a rock formation that looks like a skull. And I mean, I say is because it's still there. It's just badly marred, but you can Google it and see the picture. I was looking at it in preparation of this. You can see the holes for the eyes and the, you know, obviously it's been a couple thousand years, so it's not like looking like a skull straight out of X-Files or something, but it's clearly what they identified as the place of a skull. It's a rock formation. Jesus would have been crucified in front of it and resurrected right next to it. This is not coincidence. It's providence. Why did God resurrect him there of all places? Well, a skull represents Death, and it's something that Satan held over humanity. We just read in Hebrews 2. But a skull is also a head. It's a head. Anytime you see a skull, as a matter of fact, we identify animals by the skull. The skull is literally a head. Satan was told, he shall bruise your head. Jesus died at in front of the head. And then rose from the dead, which represents that death has no mastery over him, which belonged to Satan, which was one of his greatest powers. He rose from the dead at the head. Even the place where Jesus died and came back from accentuates the imagery of Genesis 3.15's curse on Satan. God didn't say just the impact matters. This statement will be proven even down to the location of where it happens. God leaves no Loose ends when it comes to redemption. Second loose end. That was light. Second loose end. Second loose end. Darkness and death. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54 tell us this. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, illahi, illahi, laba That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran, once, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Mark 15, 33 tells us this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Luke 23, verses 44 and 45 tell us this. And it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain was torn in two. It's interesting that the darkness comes in the middle of the six hours of Jesus on the cross. It doesn't start. Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Darkness comes at 12 p.m. So from 12 to 3, darkness is over the land. What is God doing here? Now, what I'm about to say is connected to the fact that we have interpreted Scripture largely, and in some cases solely through a non-supernatural lens. By that, I mean we process the gospel, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We process everything of being about us and our salvation and almost nothing to do with the nature of the relationship between God and his first sons of God. We process it from we're the sons of God, and that's our primary way of understanding the atonement. That's not wrong in and of itself, but we neglect that they were the first sons of God. I want to introduce you to, this may not be an introduction for some of you, but it may. Many of you may not know that there are different theories on the atonement, different theories. Three major ones that I'm aware of, Christus Victor view, penal substitution view, and the moral equivalence view. These are three distinct views, even though I think some of them really just overlap, or, or to some degree, all of them do. But throughout history, these are three distinct views. We are the most familiar with penal substitution. Let me explain to you the difference between two of them, Christus Victor and penal substitution view. Here's the Christus Victor view. This view emphasizes Jesus's victory over sin, death, and the powers of evil. It portrays Jesus's death and resurrection as a triumphant act that liberates humanity from bondage. Here's the penal substitution view. This view focuses on Jesus's sacrificial death as a substitutionary payment for humanity's sins. It highlights the satisfaction of God's justice and the forgiveness of sins through Christ's atoning sacrifice. I agree with that. I think that's biblical. But notice that this one doesn't have powers of evil at all in it. It doesn't. Here's the Christus Victus view of sin. Christus Victor. Sin is seen as a power that holds humanity in bondage, enslaving them to evil and separating them from God. Jesus' victory over sin breaks its power and offers liberation. Okay, that's the penal substitution is this. Sin is viewed primarily as a violation of God's law resulting in guilt and deserving punishment. Jesus' death is understood as taking the punishment on behalf of humanity satisfying God's judgment. Simple enough, except it lacks the enslaving to evil and The nature of the atonement. Christus Victor would say this. Atonement is understood as a cosmic battle between God and the powers of evil. Jesus' death and resurrection defeat these powers, restoring humanity's relationship with God and bringing about redemption. Penal substitution would say atonement is seen as a legal transaction where Jesus takes upon himself the penalty that humanity deserves for sin, By satisfying God's justice, he offers forgiveness and reconciles humanity with God. They both sound fantastic. Penal substitution, it lacks the powers of evil dynamic. My perspective, what I'm about to say, is a blending of these two views, largely due to what we've learned in this series. I do not believe that any Christian should solely think of the crucifixion as just what God did for them and separate what was happening in the supernatural realm. We have in this series highlighted the significance of this storyline, which is essentially about God's relationship with the cosmic beings that he's created. I believe the cross is also dealing with the relationship God had with cosmic beings as well as the relationship with humanity. In other words, I mean, he's judging all sin, both human and supernatural. And the reason is that humanity's sin and cosmic beings' sin are inextricably linked together. They're inextricably linked together. Sin happened primarily by the influence and instruction of supernatural beings. In the garden, would Eve have sinned if Satan not tempted her? Maybe. But it came at temptation. And there's other reasons why I think this we'll see in a moment. So on the cross, I think God is judging all sin, but I think the darkness is the distinction. Let me explain what I mean. Cosmic and human sin are both mentioned in Scripture as being dealt with by Jesus on the cross, often interchangeably, sometimes separately. So cosmic sin, let's go back real quick, Genesis 3.15, something that y'all should have so memorized that anybody even says 3 or 15, you automatically start quoting this verse. He says, I will put enmity talking to Satan between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Saying, your, what you've done has consequences that now I'm going to overthrow and this he's going to overthrow it. We saw this in the Easter Sunday message on the cross and resurrection. John 12, 31 through 33. Here's what Jesus says. Remember the question I said, why did Jesus believe he was going to die? Here's what he said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus understood that I'm about to die and that's going to be the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then when I do that, when I'm lifted up, when I'm crucified, I will draw all people to myself. He understood I'm here to overthrow Satan, the powers of darkness. In John 12, 47, in the same conversation, Jesus makes clear what he means by this world will be judged. If anyone hears my words, it's John 12:47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So when Jesus said now in John 12, 31 is the judgment of this world, he wasn't talking about humanity. Jesus said I came to save them. I'm not, that's not the world I'm talking about. I'm talking about the world that belongs to the devil. The cosmic powers of darkness is what I'm here to do. He's connecting the sins of these cosmic beings as part of the reason why he's dying on the cross. In fact, he makes it the first reason and humanity's salvation is the result of that. Then there are other verses and I wish I had time to list them all but there's other verses that show the combination of this. How man's sin and divine being sin were both atoned for. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's our sinfulness right there on the cross, right? 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. So you see, this is a fusion. Humanity's sin is atoned for, nailed by the cross. On the other side, the rulers and authorities and these cosmic powers, he put them to open shame by the same act on the cross. Mm -hmm. rulers and authorities are not human, but cosmic powers. By cosmic, I mean supernatural beings that have rebelled against God. How is Jesus dying on the cross, the judgment of Satan and the gods of this world? And why does it disarm them and put them to open shame? This is what he says. This is his word. We'll come back to that in a second. On the cross, this is my point, God is judging all sin, human and divine, or or supernatural. Because some people equate divine solely to God. When I say divine, I mean divine beings that he created, supernatural beings. He's judging all of it. And the distinction is the darkness. Why do I say that? Although darkness is often described as judgment connected to the day of the Lord, or describing hell, the outer darkness, it is almost always connected to the judgment of supernatural beings. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 tells us this. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So here he's drawing attention to darkness and judgment of angels who sinned. In the same vein, Jude says something similar. Now, we looked at this when we went all the way back to Genesis 6 and the book of Enoch and so forth. June 6 tells us, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. Once again, angels, darkness. This is the connection. It's supernatural beings, darkness. Now, don't get me wrong, darkness is mentioned throughout the Bible. People will go into the outer darkness, which is what hell is another, it's another description of what hell is called, but it largely is connected to supernatural beings, angels who disobeyed God, referring almost exclusively that we know of back to Genesis 6. While humans who reject God will experience outer darkness, the language in the scriptures reserves darkness first and foremost for supernatural beings who sin because they have led humanity into sin. Let's go back to a passage that we looked at earlier in the series, Psalm 82. This is God talking to other divine beings and listen to what he says to them about the way they've interacted with humanity. Listen to his words, you know this. We went through this already. Verse one of Psalm 82 God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And here's God's conversation with them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So this is what he's saying. You all who have authority over these people are not doing any of the things that I told you to do. In fact, you're doing the opposite. You are allowing these people to sin whom I gave you charge over from Deuteronomy 32. And God says this in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Listen to that phrase. This is God talking. God saying, all the foundations of the earth are shaken because you, divine beings, have led these people into sin. You've led them into sin. You've not brought justice. You've not brought, you've not helped the weak. You've not helped the needy. These people are afflicted and destitute. And so he says this in verse 6, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, all of you like men shall die and fall like any prince. In case you're getting lost, here's the point I'm trying to make. Humanity's sin and angels' cosmic beings' sin are inextricably linked. Inextricably linked. From God's perspective, they're inextricably linked. They're not just what they do and what they do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're not responsible for our sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're inextricably linked, and that our sin is largely influenced and affected by divine beings whom God says, I am going to punish you as well. Let me further prove the point that they're inextricably linked. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says this. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, excuse me, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen to what God is saying. He said, listen, when you're talking to people who disagree with the gospel, opponents of it, I want you to be gentle and patient when you explain why they need to believe in Jesus. Don't be offended. right? Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be arguing with people. There's no such thing as jerks for Jesus, right? That just doesn't only exist in some other theological circles. That exists on YouTube. That's YouTube theology a bunch of platform epistemologians are arguing people down like, Jesus didn't argue nobody down. He was like, let me ask you a question. If they can't answer the question, all right, I'm not answering your question. Let's keep it moving. You don't see Jesus arguing with anybody. And if he was, he was the Lord. He can do that perfectly without sinning. He can flip over a table and be perfectly because of God's glory. If I flip over a table, I'm mad at one of (laughs) y'all. Can't work. God is saying here that they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So they are doing the will of the devil. They're not even doing their own will. So again, I'm not saying humanity is not responsible. I'm just saying cosmic beings are as well. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, but we'll be in a couple weeks. Listen to what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying, listen, this isn't a beef between conservatives and liberals. This isn't a beef between Black Lives Matter and Ben Shapiro and them. This isn't a beef between these people and that people, the left and the right. This isn't a beef between Calvinists and Arminians. This isn't a beef. This isn't a beef between the church and the LGBT community. This is not the beef. Yes, we have standards, but that's not the beef. The beef is there are cosmic powers of darkness that you are fighting against, and the people that you see that you don't like that bother you by their sin and their disagreement with the gospel are taken captive by the devil to do his will. They are inextricably linked. God is not just punishing the sin of humanity, but he's judging the sin of the cosmic beings as well. All sin is being punished on the cross. Not just there, but we don't talk like this because we live in the penal substitution primary, which is a good word, don't get me wrong. I'm with penal substitution, but I'm also with aspects of Christus Victor as well. Again, I'm not saying we're not all responsible. The cross connects all these scenes. Satan in Genesis 3, the gods of Egypt in Exodus 7 through 12, and God's rebuke of the divine sons of God in Psalm 82. I won't have time to get to the Psalm 82 because of time. But we'll make the connections between the gods of Egypt, the plagues, and the cross. Three judgments from the plagues show up at the cross. Three scenes, at least three of them. We see blood and water, blood turned to water in the first plague. That's at the cross. We see darkness, the ninth plague, and then we see the death of the firstborn, in the tenth plague. Those three show up. So as God's judging Egypt in uh, Exodus. Why do some of these show up on the cross thousands of years later? Well, the darkness on the cross, it mimics that of Egypt. God is drawing attention back to that moment. He was judging the gods of Egypt and Egypt then. And now he's judging God himself. As a plague in Egypt, the darkness on the cross was for three days. The darkness in in Egypt was for three days. On the cross, it was for three hours. So it's mimicking. Three days of darkness for Egypt, three hours on the cross. Now you may say from a time perspective, in the space-time continuum that we live in, you may say, well, three days and three hours are two different things. But keep in mind who's on the cross. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the reason why it's hard for us to understand the cross, we clearly see Jesus was crucified by two other people. His anguish is not the physical pain. If two other guys can handle it, Jesus certainly could. The problem on the cross was this was an eternal moment. It was an eternal traumatic moment. Mm -hmm. When Jesus was on the cross, he's not processing it just as a human being. He's also fully God. He knows what eternity is like. He knows how long God's hated sin throughout eternity. So if you're one of those people that believe the earth is millions of years old, imagine that God has hated sin that whole time, and now Jesus is getting millions of years old of hatred on the cross. If you're one of those people that believe that there's thousands of years old, then God has hated sin since before those thousands of years. And he's getting all of that on the cross. And for Jesus, those three hours of darkness to us were three forevers for him. They were three forevers. Think of Marvel, the quantum mania. They go in and he comes out and it's been like 20 seconds. But he's like 80 years old. Goes in, he comes out. It's been 20 seconds. He's been in there for years. They said, you've been gone, for, it's been five years, it's been three hours to me. On the cross, there was not a concept of time for Jesus. It was an eternal conflict between him and the Father. And as far as Jesus knew, I don't know when this is going to end. Yes, yes, yes. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On the cross... The first three hours of daytime and light were so the Jews could clearly see it was Jesus on the cross and that God was holding him responsible for sin. At the plagues, the light was there so the Egyptians could see that the God of the Jews was responsible. They were able to see it's dark here, but it's not dark where the Israelites are. On the cross, the darkness was there For Jesus because he was being judged by God. In the plagues, the darkness was there for Pharaoh because his gods were being judged by God. The difference in response on the cross is also notable. There's a clear difference in the way Jesus talks from the hours of 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. and then when it gets dark from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Now if this is right, which most most scholars believe, and if I'm wrong, Dr. Lee is in the back. He is a scholar of scholars back there, former uh, Westminster Theological Seminary professor, my man, he's back there. He can, you can ask him if this is wrong, all right? This is the chronological order that most theologians would place, all seven things Jesus said on the cross. The first three are on the day, 9 through 12 p.m., 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. He says in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the first thing he says. He says in Luke 23, 43, truly I say to you that you will be with me in paradise. And he says in John, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. So these are all, think about what he said. These are all have to do with human relationships. He's all focused on what's happening with other people. God, forgive them telling the thief, you're going, to, you're going to be in heaven, telling John, take care of my mom. All that's happening the first three hours. But once it gets dark, then it becomes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34. He says, I thirst. Think about that. The living water is now thirsty. He says, it is finished, John 19, 30. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. On the cross, there were six hours. I think all sin was being judged. I'm not saying it was three hours for the cosmic beings, three hours for humanity. It was for everyone, everything. What I'm saying is that the sin of the cosmic beings that is often behind the scenes of humanity's sins is also being judged on the cross. And I think specifically from that sixth hour to the ninth hour, which is the 12 to 3 p.m. for us, is when it gets more intense. I think that intensity, that darkness is like, whoa, this is where Jesus is like this is. I think it's different. It's more intense. He's not worried about anybody else right now now it's just him and the father and the eternal hatred for sin that he's experiencing and for him it's not clear I doubt Jesus is thinking this is just going to be three hours because if Jesus thought I can it's six hours he wouldn't have been in the garden of Gethsemane saying take this cup from me Jesus can handle six hours on the cross but the eternal son of God, the wrath of God, that's an eternal thing. No one has experienced that yet. And to this moment, no one has. He's the only one being fully God that knows what that wrath is going to feel like. But I think, I think also it's all sin. The emphasis is on humanities because we're the only ones that are going to be redeemed. Divine beings cannot be redeemed, if for no other reason, because they sinned in the presence of God. We sin in the presence of God. We sin in the omnipresence of God. Right? right. Right, He's everywhere. He's right here. He's right there. He's probably like, oh, Kurt, why why you say that? (laughs) We sin in the omnipresence of God. They sin in the presence of God. Remember Ezekiel 28 when he was talking to Satan like, you were created. You were the guardian cherub. You had all these jewels that were a part of you when you were born, when I created you. Yet, you found, it, it was like it was almost like this, man, what happened? There was a divine, all sin breaks relationship with God. It ain't just humanity, it's just those divine beings. I believe that this, this resurrection and the judgment on the cross, it disarmed the cosmic powers. And this is why the language talks about after that, that they're in now subjection to him. We always think, oh, he was, God. he had to die for certain things to be true. Your Bible says, because of, and we talked about this in the Roman series, there are multiple verses that highlight because Jesus did this, he's now this. Now we tend to think, well, nah, he's been like that the whole time. No, when Jesus became a human being, that meant something to them. That wasn't just a day in the park. Like, oh, we'll just die on the cross and redeem people. That was a big decision. Hey, we're going to separate for some time. And not only that, I'm going to judge you, hate you, and pour out my wrath on you, my own self, my own son, so that humanity could be forgiven, but so then the divine beings would also be rightly set up for punishment. Why? To the divine beings? Because you caused these people to sin. The only way to redeem them is I have to punish myself. Your influence, their instruction is the reason why Jesus came. That's why God told Satan he's going to crush your head. You're responsible for this. And because my son had to die, I had to punish my own son. I had to punish God because that's the only person who can handle the full wrath of God. I'm the only one that can handle my wrath fully and to cover everybody's sins that you instituted, I got to punish my son. So you can best believe there's no forgiveness for you. But for them, they can be redeemed. Because they, like the people now with them, don't know what we're doing. Remember Jesus told Nathan You believe, he told Thomas, he said, you believe because you see the holes in my hands. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. Now, unless I checked, (laughs) nobody in this room is a couple thousand years old. So when you believe in the Lord, God knows you're believing in faith a story that has transpired for thousands of years and that you are holding the most precious thing that anyone can hold is a confidence that even though I'm sinful and when I die I'm going to stand before God and get to go to heaven because of something someone else did you talk about borrowing somebody's credit (sighs) (sighs) ah I'll just say this, the cross is deeper than we'd like to imagine. Let me close with this last, this last loose end that God does not leave. No loose ends, he leaves none when it comes to redemption. <clears throat> and John 19, 28 through 30. This one to me personally is just, the Lord is just, is just, He's just something else. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Now, this is a scene that we've glossed over plenty of times. But remember, God leaves no loose ends. It's worth reexamining. Now, this is the scene of all scenes. So here's a question, and every detail matters. God's intentional, right? Every detail matters. Why does God want us to know that a hyssop branch was used? It says this, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That's an important detail that God wants us to know that a hyssop branch was used. Well, why? Well, let's go back to Exodus 12, beginning of verse 21. Here's what it says. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door until his house in the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and allow the destroyer And and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you, all right? So here at the beginning of redemption of God's people, God says, take the hyssop branch and dip it in the blood of the lamb. And take that hyssop branch and sprinkle it on the doorpost. Now, remember, God put this detail in here, not me. I just want to know why. I just like to ask, why is this here? Why do we need to know this? The hyssop branch is dipped into the blood of the lamb this scene is the beginning of the process of redemption for God's people God saves the Israelites in Exodus by the blood of the lamb now keep in mind who he's saving them from he's not saving them from the Egyptians God isn't saving them from the Egyptians. This is the one he says in verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the blood on the lamb that was on the door was God saving his people from him. It was his wrath he was saving them from. This is the only time they had to participate. God is saving his people from him by them dipping the hyssop branch into the blood of the lamb and putting it on the doorpost. And when he sees that blood, he will pass over them. This scene is the prefiguration of the cross. Jesus is the antitype of the Lamb of God whose blood saves his people. It wasn't from the Egyptians. It was from him. In Egypt, the hyssop branch was necessary for the blood of the Lamb to be part of what, what God saved Israel from. On the cross, the hyssop branch was necessary for the blood of the Lamb to be a part of what God saved his people from. God leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. Now, here's a fun fact there are 12 uses of the hyssop branch in Scripture. There are 12. If I had time, I'd, I'd tell them. But they're in Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14 has them. There are five in Leviticus 14, there's two in Numbers 19. There's one in 1 Kings 4, there's one in Psalm 51, there's one in John 19, and there's one in Hebrews 9.19. Twelve uses of the hyssop branch. Of those twelve uses, only one does not pertain to some kind of salvation or cleansing, forgiveness from God. Only one. 1 Kings 4, is the only one that is not connected to the relationship with God and being clean before God or forgiven by God. Out of the 12 uses of hyssop, only one is not connected to salvation. Fun fact, 12 uses of hyssop, one not salvation. 12 disciples, one not connected to salvation. Twelve uses of hyssop, one not connected. Twelve disciples, one not connected to salvation. God leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. And because time got away from me, I'll close. Father, I, you know, as I pray to you throughout these days when I'm working on these things and trying to and feel like I'm seeing these connections, you know that I ask you to help me make sure what I'm saying is, even if it's fresh or new or perspective, and, and Lord, you know that even if my, some connections here are wrong, this is a unique series for us. It's a unique way to understand your word. And you've given us a lot of grace and a lot of great moments throughout this series that started in September. You know ultimately my job is not to distract anyone. And if anything I said was wrong, none of it was wrong in the sense that it would destroy the accurate theology that we've all known and believe. But Lord, I want us to stretch. I believe you have stretched us in this series to help us just know and love your word more, to be fascinated, to cultivate awe in your word, things that we just glossed over. I pray that that this would be more than that for all of us, especially for those of us who have been in this series. And where there's disagreement, Lord, let there be disagreement. But where there's agreement, let us worship and stand together. Some of these points are finer points of theology. They're not necessarily what defines us, but they can at times, if accurate, help us to just be more all of you. So, Lord, all of these connections are there for a reason. You put them in your word. It's our job to seek them out and to try to understand as best as we can. And when we're in error, and if I'm in error, Lord, you know it's not because I'm trying to draw attention away from the truth of who you are. But I'm trying to draw attention to the truths that we sometimes overlook. So I pray, Lord, that in this and every message, every time we spend time with you, there is some, some awe. Even if we're not making some connection we've never seen, that's not the purpose of your word. But you do allow us at times to be refreshed in those ways. So may today be, be included in that for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Uh, we have just a couple questions, so if you have a question, make sure you get it in uh, as soon as possible, 240-623- 8076. Um the uh, first question is um, so um, since Golgotha is not on a hill, do you have any idea where people get the idea that the crucifixion happened on a hill far away? From that. Oh. From that. From songs.
0: You'd be surprised how much theology we get from songs. Or just random stuff. We ju- and we just believe it because So this is the thing, right? Everyone in here has a theological foundation. And everyone got, most of us got our theological foundation from someone else. And we often tend to lionize whoever is our theological foundation. So if it's John Calvin, if it's Luther, if it's whoever it is, if it's John Piper, if it's T.D. Jakes, wherever, right, wherever you get your foundation from, we tend to think only what they've said can be said again. You can't say other things because that would disagree with tradition. But I think the theologians and the pastors who I've been most influenced by are not afraid to challenge tradition if the Bible supports that. Right. I think a lot of what we've been pushing back in this series without even trying to is a traditional foundation of the way we've understood the Bible that's separate from any supernatural connection. That's why many of us are like, wow, I feel like I'm reading my Bible for the first time. It's not because it's not there, it's just it hasn't been our emphasis. So I think in modern Christendom, particularly American evangelicalism, there and even mainline, there is a, an understanding of how we've interpreted, and I, as I, I'm in an allegiance with this theologian, so if you say something that disagrees with him, you're a heretic. Yeah. And it's like, ah, uh, but you know what? When he wrote that theology, that was the first time anybody heard that theology, So it's not like, oh, it's because I haven't heard this before. It's it's just like, you haven't heard it before. There's a lot of stuff we haven't heard before. And there's stuff that you've clearly seen in the Word. So I think the ideal of the hill, well, one, in one of the Hebrew definitions for Golgotha does say hill. But the other ones don't. There's one Hebrew that, whenever you look at Hebrew dictionaries, there's a bunch of different, one of them, the LSG, does say seem like on a hill. But that's one out of a bunch of definitions. But a lot of it is. But historically, no one can find it. That's why people don't know uh, the, the, what's that church, the Holy Sepulcher? Sepulcher or whatever? They say that it's in there. It, it happened on their grounds. Right? So there's a lot, but, but, but that's not that hasn't been the historical case. And the much evidence has disproven, especially the, I didn't go through because of time. I, I, I skipped stuff that I wanted to say. To further make the point, but there are just scriptures where people are just jeering at Jesus going by and seeing him. There's a re- you have to figure out why did they want him them to take them down? Like what if they were far away up on a mountain? Like why would that bother them for the Passover? Why would that bother them? Those are the kinds of questions you have to investigate. And then when you look at the history, you read some of the Jewish historians. They weren't. It wasn't on a faraway hill where people were seeing Jesus far away. It was there were people who were troubled. Jesus was, It was hard for Jesus to carry the cross. Not because it was up a hill, but because his back was split open. I mean, he was a human being. He's woozing. He's probably in and out of consciousness on some level. Like, that's you're carrying a heavy bar after you've been beaten. You got a crown of thorns pressing into your temple? Like, that's a crazy. I mean, so anyway, I just think a lot of it is through tradition, through songs, and through well-intentioned people, but not rooted in historical, accurate truth or theology. And if I'm wrong about the hell, cool. Then Jesus was crucified at the top of the head. Still stands. (laughs) He still crushed the head. So then he was at the top of it. Cool. I'm
1: with it. Do you know uh, why theologically, uh, as it relates to the atonement, that there's rarely a blend in terms of what theologians believe? You mentioned three, the. Christus Victor, the moral, the moral equipment. So this is my perspective,
0: obviously. So you get, in human history, we have this period called the Age of Enlightenment, right? The Age of Enlightenment was a period where secularism, philosophy, psychology, science, all of this kind of rises to be the dominant worldview in the way people see themselves. Before that, religion was the dominant worldview, faith, superstitions. But when this age of enlightenment comes, all of a sudden, reason, my ability to think, is more important than my ability to imagine and have faith. So you get from that, I think, therefore I am, right? There's a a period where all of it is about, you get the scientific method, right? Hypothesis testing theory right it's all like evidence we got we don't believe in this faith stuff anymore you even get the the minimization of satan all of a sudden in literature satan starts becoming this little demon with a long tail and a pitchfork that's mischievous rather than a vulnerable opponent that god says resist him be sober minded resist him firm in your faith that gets lost over hundreds of years of this sort of philosophical, logical, scientific reality. So the church, in response to that, has to try to push back against it. That's If you're a Christian, you're, you're afraid, because people are like, oh man, nobody believes that stuff anymore. We believe in the ability to think. So you're pushing back against it, so you get a lot of apologetics is now trying to use the scientific method. Mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden now, it's, it's proof apologetics and trying to come up with arguments that, in all honesty, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 14 makes it clear. The man without the spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So don't get me wrong, defend your faith, but you create a lot of apologetics that re- refutes the, this naturalistic, non-supernatural worldview with a non-supernatural theology. And so now a lot of the apologetics that come as a result of that don't really have nothing to do. In fact, even these theologians, Martin, Calvin, all of these guys, they don't touch the supernatural. They acknowledge that they exist, but this is not their emphasis. Their emphasis is, so this is my second reason. The other reason why this doesn't happen is because all theology is culturally uh, uh, assumed, right? The Reformation is pushing back against the Catholic Church, Right? No theology is in and of itself. It's pushing back all of the doctrines that we have. The Trinity. Our understanding of, of the incarnation. All these doctrines that we have came as a result of people trying to say things that they were like, this is not true. You cannot deny Jesus' divinity. You cannot, Athanasius, you cannot deny humanity sinful. You cannot. So all of our solid theology from the early uh, theologians comes from People attacking what they thought was proper theology. So it's all in context. So everything is in context. Well, the context then was stopping the Catholic Church. That's where the Reformation comes from. Their, their theology, their traditions, their view of the Pope. And, and then you get later on, the context becomes, we got to stop this, this worldview, this age, this scientific, got to prove it now. We don't have to have faith. I need evidence. Yeah. Prove to me your God exists. Yeah. Nobody was saying that up to the point. Now, maybe Pilate, when he was like, what is truth?" <laughs> but Pilate would have believed in the Roman pantheon. There was a ton of gods that Rome believed in. So it wasn't like Pilate didn't believe in God. He just didn't believe that Jesus was God. They've always believed in it. This Atheism is a new concept. Mm-hmm. It does not trace itself back to hum- the beginning of humanity. Atheism is a result of largely this age of entitlement, age of enlightenment. Age of entitlement is this period. Right, yeah. Age of enlightenment is what we've experienced. And so in many ways, there's a context. And I'm, don't get me wrong, these, these people went well. They were sharp people. There's a lot of good apologetics literature that I've read. But a lot of it is about proving God exists to people who don't believe it and using, sometimes, scientific methodology to prove things that are metaphysical. right? Science is a physical reality. God is metaphysical. So we, we at best, can try to help people. I think there's a lot of good. I'm not saying that apologetics is wrong. I'm just saying it had an emphasis, but it's not the only emphasis. Just like the church, even in 1 Corinthians 12, we got the arms, the leg, the, the body of Christ, right? God says that everybody serves different parts. So what I believe theologically and where we are as a church serves a role, but there may be people. There's a Presbyterian church over there that is solid. My buddy is an elder at Wallace Presbyterian, good friend of mine, but I don't agree with what he agrees with. We don't agree theologically on some things, but I, he's a brother. I'm a brother. He might say, I don't agree with that. And I would say, I don't agree with that. Here's why I don't agree. Here's why I don't agree. We have those conversations sometimes. But it doesn't change anything. So again, there are other aspects of theological strains that we're good to explore. Remember, we can speculate on what the Bible is not clear on as long as we don't change what the Bible is clear on. And I think that's what we're doing. So in this series, that's what we're doing. I think a lot of theologians have meant well, but a lot of it has just been relegated to over here. I've been been in reform theology since 1999, and I can say two things that I never really heard taught were love being an essential reality for the assurance of salvation among believers, and I haven't heard a solid supernatural theology. Now, there's demons come up. Go. You can look at any comment. They'll talk about them, but I haven't heard it explained. Like, how does it work? So it's all been relegated to, like, the Pentecostals and Charismatics. Mm-hmm. So they go one way. Everything is a devil. And in Reform the Reformed, they think nothing is the devil. He's been defeated at the cross. But the Bible says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist him firm in your faith. Ephesians 6.12, that's post-resurrection theology. That's re- Jesus resurrected, and Paul says, this is the present darkness. And all these demonic hierarchies are still present after the resurrection. Right. I just think it's, it's, a, it's a well-intentioned failure on the part to not try to make sure we bridge Ooh. the gap. And this is why this theologian, whom Carla knows well, Michael Heiser, wrote a book called The Unseen Realm and was one of the few people, but he wasn't the first. Ooh. I got books from theologians in the 1950s. Michael Heiser used to always say this, I've never had an original thought. And I was like, yeah, right, he's just trying to be humble, man. This stuff is crazy. Then I started finding other books and was like, wait a minute, this is 1954 lectures saying the same stuff. I was like, wow, this is, it's not a theology that's new. It's just, it hasn't been emphasized. And so I wanted for us to emphasize it so it adds to who we are, to encourage us to persevere, not detracts. And if it detracts, I apologize. If it's stuff you haven't heard, I apologize. You know largely our church is here to honor the Lord and take the word seriously, but at times we want to see, why is this here? And what could this mean? And even if we're wrong, it shouldn't affect the way we live. It should actually spur us on regardless.
1: Amen. Thank you, sir. Um, This question is, uh, did Jesus take on the sin of divine beings or only humans? I think he was
0: punished for all sin. I think he was punished for all sin. He took on the sin of humanity because humanity would be redeemed. He's not taking on the sin, but he's punished for all of it. It's all judgment against those gods. And I didn't get to answer this question because of time, so we'll come back to this. But why does that? Why, God? Remember, God said this, that Jesus' death on the cross disarms them and puts them to the open shame. Well, how does it do that? Well, we'll talk about that in another message. But that's an important distinction. Like God is saying that those two are inextricably linked. So all I'm all I'm saying, I'm not trying to say more than with the body. I don't think he took on the sins of divine beings in the way that he took on humanity because we're we're redeemed. Our sins are being forgiven. But I think all sin and rebellion is being punished on the cross. I think it's all being punished. And I think there's something is why Jesus said the ruler of this world would be cast out. There's, there, my dying on the cross is going to affect you. Now, there's some obvious ways that we can see how that works out. But, but there's other things which says, look, he put them into subjection under him. Remember First uh, Peter 3? After he goes down into heaven and preaches to the disobedient spirits, mm-hmm. puts them in subjection over him at the right hand of the Father. That stuff means something. That stuff means something. So I'm vying for just the reality that I think that all sin and rebellion was punished, including the cosmic being sin. But Jesus took on the sinful humanity because that was the only sin that was redeemable. But I think, I think it was all sin was being punished, not just humanity's.
1: Um, this person asks, um, how could the devil have uh, entered Judas if he was filled with the Holy Spirit? If Judas was filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, at that point,
0: I don't know if they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, you get after that, Jesus breathes on them, received the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that passage later in the series. But you don't really get the spirit really in in the form that we're used to until Acts 2, Mm -hmm. until Pentecost. So I don't think he was filled with the spirit. I think God gave him a degree of authority like the other disciples to cast out demons, to heal and all of that. So if there was spirit activity, it was temporary for those particular things. But there's no filling with the spirit until it was always momentary. I mean, even in the Old Testament, remember, I forgot where this is. But there was a point where when Saul was about to be king, oh. mm-hmm. he was, there were was some people prophesying, and Saul was watching them. Then all of a sudden, it said Saul stood near them, and he just started prophesying, too. And they were like, what in the world happened to Saul? It would have been like Saul was shouting in the Old Testament. With the keyboard, dun, 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 dun. It was Saul all of a sudden. Just, so again, I, I don't think the, the Holy Spirit really, really comes into play as a resting Reality in people until after Acts 2. And in Acts 2, be clear, that was the disciples who got the Spirit. It wasn't everybody at first. It just became like, okay, here's where it developed. So it's a progressive, revelatory thing. So he wasn't filled with the Spirit. Um, Judas wasn't. But God allowed him, you know, to do things. that. So when God said, many will say to me, we did mighty works in your name and miracles in your name. say, I don't know you. So God let Judas be with him and was like he's he's not gonna make it. He told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, look, you guys sit on Moses' seat, but he said, listen to them, but don't don't follow what they do, because they're not gonna make it. So I think that's just that's that's what I don't think he had the spirit at all, in the sense that we're used to talking about it.
1: Uh, so regarding the uh, the things you didn't you weren't able to touch on in this message, um, there's a question as to whether or not you could post those things. Um, somewhere so we can see them or or are you now I'm adding this or are you going to like trickle them? So there's one
0: more loose ends message and it'll be there.
1: It'll be in that message. I'm not going to post them because they would have too much
0: qualification Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like explaining all that through writing and Mm -hmm. I'll just in the message
1: I'll tie up the left. There's another one more loose ends message and those will be included in that. Okay. And and this uh, last question um, is um, actually asking you your take on Something so um, understanding that the hyssop is used for medicinal purposes to cleanse the body. Do you think there's some spiritual connection that the hyssop was used to cleanse the soul? Spiritual connection? Yes. I, I don't I don't think so. That wouldn't be I don't know I don't, I mean, I don't get that.
0: I think the times that it's used so it's used 11, 12 times in the Bible. The one time in First Kings four, it's just mentioning about different trees, cedar wood, and this and that, and hyssop is mentioned. But the five times in Leviticus fourteen, and those are all connected to salvation, sin, atonement, things like that. Being clean, needing to be clean before—they're all connected in that sense. I don't think there's any spiritual at all. I think the hyssop branch in John nineteen is just closing. The gap. Like how God began redemption is how he ends it. He includes the hyssop branch as something that's there. That little detail, like that small, like that could have not been there. It wouldn't take away anything from what Jesus did on the cross. Nothing. But God includes it because that was there at the beginning. It's there at the end. He leaves little loose end. So I think it's there for that reason. I wouldn't recommend looking for hyssop branch uh, vitamin pills and stuff like that as a or trying to go far some. <laughs> talking to Carl about where Hyssop branches might be in the area. Like, I, I don't think that's that's what we're supposed to do. I'm not sure if they have spiritual significance, but they have eternal significance in that. That's how God began and they were the branch that God began to end redemption with, so in that sense, yeah. All right. Whew! Man, it was some stuff. It'll be in the next one. It was a couple things I didn't get to see, but that would have been too much anyway. So let's, let's, let's remind ourselves, while we can get distracted in all of the details of this stuff and be overwhelmed with all the information, let's bring it back to just the brass tax facts. We get to do this every Sunday. And even though today was a lot to do with the crucifixion and the cross, right now we get to apply it, at least in this sense. We should always be applying what Jesus did for us on the cross, but in this particular act of the church. And this is for those who are believers. If you're not a believer, this is the one time where we would ask you not to participate, not because we're trying to ostracize you, but we believe the Bible teaches that this particular function is for those who have professed faith and are trying to obey God with the way that they live. So this would be the one time we'd ask you not to participate, but for those of us that do, this is the practical weekly reminder for us of a lot of what we talked about in this message of Jesus' death on the cross so Lord we just we thank you for your mercy and your grace and even though this wafer is not your body it reminds us that your body was broken in connection to this sermon thank you for what you've done on the cross for us and what you continue to do in our lives because of the cross for your glory and our good let's eat this together And Lord, this juice also reminds us of the blood, the incorruptible blood that we heard about last week, that is what saves us, what guides us, what, what redeems us, what makes us sons of God. We are the new sons of God in replacement of the older sons of God that rebelled against you. And Lord, may our may our lives reflect the newness of the sonship and not the old one. Like the other ones did, may this juice that represents your blood carry us moment to moment for your glory and our good. Let's drink together. And Father, I pray lastly that 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 train, the HVAC company, would ship that last that last piece, and we've been waiting for a while, Lord. No rush. No rush. We've been waiting for a little bit of time. So I pray that you would bring that in so that they can install it, we can get our AC back so that we can really glorify you in the way that we want to. As you, as you, and your, As you came in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, we want to worship you in the cool of the building. So Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, keep us and remind us to keep ourselves in the love of God for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, thank you for everybody who came and served in uh, yesterday. Great time. It was hot, unusually hot, but we had a great time. Love you guys. See you when we see you.